Well, allow me to offer my welcome as well to you who are here in person, to you who are joining us online for week three of Odd Couples. Uh, As you've heard, we're looking at these relationships that don't make sense on paper, uh, but yet we find in Scripture and also in our own lives, Jesus doing something unique. Jesus knocking over the walls that separate us. Jesus creating new relationships, really a new people, a new family uh, who have uh, all been given one Holy Spirit to drink, as Amy just shared with us. And so uh, today, or, or last week rather, we looked at this kind of odd pairing of a Moabite daughter-in-law and a Jewish mother-in-law and how the Lord brought them together through the power of covenant. Today we're going to look at the power of forgiveness and uh, how forgiveness can create uh, some real unlikely pairings. And so I want to read to you um, about uh, a guy named Ananias and a guy named Saul, although we know him better as Paul, the Apostle Paul. And uh, their story is in Acts chapter 9. I'll begin reading in verse uh, 10. So hear the word of the Lord. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Then ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. God bless the reading of his word. In the early 20th century, a British psychologist named Charles Samuel Myers began to notice these odd constellation of symptoms in soldiers who fought uh, in World War I. For some soldiers, it was an inability to think clearly. For some, it was an inability to sleep. For others, it was a kind of helplessness or panic or or fear. Myers looked at all these symptoms and he eventually gave it a name. Uh, He said that these afflicted soldiers suffered from something he called shell shock. Much much later, mental health professionals would give it a, a different name. Uh, They would call it by the initials PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. They would call it by its name. They would call it by the name of trauma. You know, trauma has so many terrible side effects, doesn't it? This is certainly true of warfare, but I think it's also true of other kinds of violence and abuse and injury. Trauma can cause you to feel panic. It can, 
It can cause you to feel scared. It can cause you to feel helpless. It can interrupt your dreams. It can interrupt your sleep. It can, it can cause the effects of a long-ago injury to live on in your body. Now, I have seen too many victims of trauma to ever make light of its significance. And I know many of you have experienced different kinds of trauma, and our prayer is always that this is a, uh, a healing place for you. So maybe you're asking, okay, you, you read the scripture, and then you start talking about PTSD and trauma. Why, why all this talk of trauma? Well, because for me, that's what I see when I read Acts chapter 9, because to be a Christian in the early centuries of the church, early years of the church, was to live in fear of constant persecution. Uh, There was the threat of persecution from the Romans uh, because uh, Christians only worshiped one God and not many gods. Some people called them atheists, believe it or not, because they didn't believe in all the other gods. Uh, and, And the Romans found Christianity strange and unpatriotic, and so they persecuted Christians. But also, Uh, Jewish religious authorities persecuted Christians as well because they thought their belief in Jesus as Messiah, what you've just sung about, was heretical. And I I think it's safe to say that Ananias, the person who's going to take up most uh, of of the, the focus in this sermon, was impacted by trauma. He had seen his little Christian community in Syria in the city of Damascus rocked by persecution. I would not doubt it at all if Ananias experienced panic and maybe a a feeling of helplessness at times. I would not doubt at all if Ananias had a hard time sleeping. And in our passage in the night in question, I think it was was Jesus who interrupted the dreams of, of Ananias. I think the vision likely came in the form of a dream. And in what follows, you find, I think, one of the most odd pairings in all of the Bible. Uh, You find this guy who is a a part of a community that has been victimized by persecution, and then you find the lead persecutor, a guy named Saul. Now here's the challenge for me with this sermon. This is gonna sound super obvious, uh, but I'm anti-abuse. I don't know, I hope that's not breaking news. I am against abuse, I am against uh, uh, encouraging anybody to enter or re-enter an abusive situation. I am anti-abuse, but I'm also pro-forgiveness. And there are these moments where the Christ-like thing to do, where the spiritually healthy thing to do is not to re-enter an abusive situation, but it is to move towards someone who's caused us pain. To move towards someone for whom the, the mere thought or mention of their name raises an instant no in our minds and in our hearts. And so here's the big question the sermon wants to try to answer, and that is what can turn an instant no into a prayerful Yes. What can turn an instantaneous no into a prayer-filled, spirit-filled, okay, (laughs) I'll try it. We all have our own version of the instant no, right? For some of us, it's just a vigorous head shake, like, uh uh-uh, no, no way. For some of us, it's a finger wag. Uh, For some of us, it's kind of a, a, it's this, right? We, We put our hand out and we turn our head in the opposite direction. 
For some of us, maybe we laugh out loud, like, you've got to be kidding me. For some of us, uh, we don't even choose to respond. I have to believe Ananias felt an instantaneous no rise up in his soul. But as I read this passage, there were other things going on, other things that helped him get to a prayerful yes, and I want to talk about them. And the first one is identity. Identity. In this context, I want to define identity as remembering who we are in Jesus. Remembering who we are in Jesus. It is so easy to forget who we are, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that? Uh, I think for Christians especially, it is so easy to forget that we follow Christ. I mean, maybe at church, it's pretty easy most of the time. But boy, if you're at Six Flags and you've been waiting in a line for 25 minutes and somebody tries to cut in front of you, who are we then? Or or let's say it's not uh, Six Flags in 25 minutes, let's say it's uh, the DMV in 45 minutes, okay? Uh, Who are we then? Jesus may say the last shall be first, but not you, buddy. Get back to the back of the line. Who, Who are we in those moments? You know, What is it that makes us want to kind of completely cover over our VRBC t-shirt at some moments? What is our identity? Sometimes we have to ask, who am I at my heart's core? What, What truth am I trying to follow? Is it Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or is it the law of the jungle? What's my identity? I think early on in our passage, we're given some really clear clues about the identity of Ananias. In fact, in the opening words of verse 10, pretty easy to skip over, but when we're introduced to him, the first thing we're told is in Damascus, the capital city of Syria, a 4,000-year-old city, there was a disciple named Ananias. Sometimes in church, we hear this word so much, or a a version of it, that it just kind of gets overused and it slips in one ear and out the other. Disciple, discipling, discipler, discipleship. Yeah, we hear it so much, we don't even think about what it means. What does it mean? A disciple is a, is a student. And I don't mean like a seventh grader who's being made to go to, to algebra. I mean a, a willing student. A disciple is a learner. A disciple, in this instance, is a follower. You know, a a disciple is someone who stands in the waters of baptism, and when you ask that person, why are you in this water, they say, well, it's because of Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. He rescued me. But he's also my Lord. He's my leader, and I'm his disciple. I'm, I'm following him. For Ananias, disciple was not an empty phrase. When his dream was interrupted by Jesus, I want you to see how he responds. We'll continue in verse 10, the second part. The Lord called to Ananias in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. Now, once again, that just seems so simple. Uh, We could easily pass over it. but, but, But literally what he says is, behold, here I am. Behold, here I am. Which, by the way, is what a disciple says when the Lord calls. It's what Moses said. It's what Isaiah said. It's what Ananias says. It may be one of the most fundamental descriptions of what a disciple does. When the Lord calls, 
we say, I'm here. Here I am, Lord. Now, now that's really different from claiming to be a disciple. Jesus warned that in the last days, many people will use his name in vain. They'll say, Lord, Lord, as if they know him. And he'll say, we've never had a relationship. You're using my name, but you've never, you've never followed me. So, so, so who are we as disciples? We're people whom, when the Lord calls, we say, yes, Lord. Which, by the way, is very different from not now, Lord, or take a number, Lord, or this is a really inconvenient time, Lord. What's our identity? You ever notice how when you get a, a gift card uh, and you turn, turn it over on the back, say it's an Amazon gift card, uh, what you really need to know is underneath this orange thing, isn't it? I mean, this, this is not worth much to you, just the plastic. Um, what you need to do is you need to take a coin or your finger or just like peel off that orange part to get to the magic numbers that define, that unlock the value of the card. You've got to scratch off the surface, in other words. Let me ask you a question. When, when somebody scratches through the religious veneer of you, of me, what does it say underneath? Who are we at our core? Tom Holland uh, is a secular historian. He is co-host of a, uh, of a popular podcast called The Rest is History. He's, he, he's written a book. Uh, he's, he's a secular historian. He's written a book on the massive influence of Christianity on Western uh, culture and beyond. The book's called Dominion, and in one of the early chapters of the book, he describes... Um, an ancient historian named Eusebius, who's noting uh, what happened when a prisoner was arrested in ancient Gaul, uh, modern-day France, in the 170s, so say 150 years after Jesus walked the earth. His, he was arrested by Roman officials, and they were trying to pry information out of him. And so they said, what's your name, and where were you born, and what's your social status? I mean, are you slave or free? And they're asking him all these questions, and yet to every question the prisoner answered with the same sentence. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. What's your name? I'm a Christian. Where are you from? I'm a Christian. What's your social status? I'm a Christian. Who are your people? I'm a Christian. I'm a part of the body of Christ. If you want to know who I am, in other words, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Once again, I think this is so easily overlooked because knowing our identity as disciples, it sets us free from the approval of others. It, 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 it directs our look toward Christ and his grace and his approval and his help. And it leads to what I think is a second critical ingredient in the creation of this odd couple of Ananias and Saul in Acts chapter 9. And potentially uh, creating some odd couples for you as well in the days and weeks to come. It's a, a critical ingredient in getting from that instant no to a prayerful yes, and that is forgiveness. Forgiveness, and in our context, I wanna describe forgiveness as refusing to let past pain block present obedience. Refusing to let the pain that we've experienced from someone in the past 
block us from being obedient to what Jesus is instructing us to do in the present moment. And that's what we see with Ananias in his interaction with Jesus. Once again, uh, the Lord calls to Ananias. Ananias gives the classic responsible disciple, here I am, Lord, at your service, Lord. You called, Lord. Uh, What are you trying to tell me, Lord? Yes, Lord. And I almost picture Jesus saying, Ananias, uh, grab a pen and a post-it note and take down what I'm about to tell you. This is kind of my reenactment of it, but, but I almost hear Jesus saying, all right, you got your pen ready? Okay, good. Uh, I want you to go downtown, Damascus. I want you to find uh, a street called Straight Street. Are you familiar with it? Yes, yes, okay. Uh, when you get to Straight Street, I want you to ask around. There's a guy who lives on Straight Street. His name is Judas, okay? I want you to ask around for Judas, okay? And when you find his house, I want you to knock on the door. And when Judas or someone from Judas' household answers, I want you to ask for a guy, a guest who's staying with Judas, He's a Syrian, just like you. Uh, He's got a Jewish background, just like you. He's from Tarsus, actually. Yeah, not too far. And, uh, oh, by the way, his name is Saul. Now, Jesus had more to say. But I wonder if at that moment, Ananias really took it in. I wonder if when Jesus said the name Saul, his heart began to beat so fast. Because you see, Saul was the name of the face on the wanted poster in the fellowship hall at First Church Damascus. Saul was this powerful religious leader who had gotten permission from powerful Christian authorities to actually get a little uh, army detail together and to go and to find Christians and to persecute and to kill them. Saul was the guy who was holding all the coats of the people who stoned Stephen, the Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7. Saul, I think we would say today, was a terrorist. Saul was an enemy of the church. And I wonder, did Ananias really take in what Jesus said next after he said the word Saul? Did he even really absorb that at that moment Jesus said Saul was praying? We don't know exactly what he was praying, probably a prayer of repentance, maybe a prayer for guidance. At that moment, Saul had been struck blind. And I wonder if Ananias really heard really understood that Jesus was about to play matchmaker. You know, in the book of Acts, Jesus often speaks through dreams. He interrupts the dreams. And sometimes they're dueling dreams, like person A has a dream about person B, while person B is having a dream about person A. And that's exactly what we learn in verse 12. In a vision, Jesus says, Saul has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So, here's the question. How will Ananias respond? You want the good news first or the bad news? I'll give you the good news. He doesn't hang up. He does not hang up on Jesus. True to his status as a disciple, he stays on the line. He still calls him Lord. That's the good news. The bad news is, you know, sometimes, like Ananias, we we doubt how smart Jesus really is. Sometimes we feel like we have to inform Jesus of things he may not be aware of. Uh, we've got to give him background, uh, like, uh, like Ananias does in, in verse 13, when he says, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man, Saul, 
and all the harm he has done to your people, your saints, your holy people in Jerusalem. Ananias is basically saying, Lord, I'm not sure you've done your homework on this guy. He's not on our team, Lord. (laughs) He's not one of us. He's done harm. Literally, uh, the word is evil. He's an evildoer, Lord. And not just in the past, we've heard reports, we've heard breaking news that this terrorist Saul is on his way to Damascus right now to arrest us, all the, 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 your people, Lord, the people who call on your name, the name of the Lord Jesus, he wants to arrest all of us. Now, do you think Jesus at that moment said, wow, man, hey, I'm sorry, Ananias, I, I, I had no idea. You've brought so much nuance to the situation that I wasn't aware of. Let me, let me make a new plan and get back to you. Is that what you think Jesus does? Uh, no, that's not what he does. In fact, in verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. How about that, okay? Uh, yeah, I've heard everything you've said, now Go. <laughs> But in his mercy, the Lord does give a little more context. He says, this man, Saul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, to their kings, King Agrippa, to the people of Israel and their synagogues. I will show him, Saul, how much he must suffer for my name, how much pain he will endure for my name. Sometimes as disciples, we need to hear Jesus reiterate the original message, go, (laughs) go. Forgive us as we forgive. But in his mercy, Jesus does give a little additional context. He says, you know what, I'm giving Saul a grace-fueled do-over. And oh, the places Saul will go. He will carry the treasure of my name to so many places. And he'll be persecuted too. And he'll suffer too. And I think this is such a critical juncture for Ananias. And not just for Ananias, but for you and me. Because so often the pain that we've experienced in our past produces a kind of bitterness in our present. And it's paralyzing. It traps us. You know, when I was a kid, it seemed like every other TV episode I watched used the same plot device, and the plot device was the dreaded quicksand. Now, I'm not saying there's no such thing as quicksand. I think there is. Um, But man, was there a lot of it on our TV sets in the 1960s and 70s. Now, here's the thing about it, apparently, and all I know I've learned from TV, but apparently, if you tried to swim out of it, you just went deeper into it. Um, And the only way you could get out of it was for a good, strong cowboy to come along with a a horse and a rope to, to rescue you. I think sometimes this is what bitterness is like for us. We just sort of kick around in it and we just keep thinking about it and we just keep sinking deeper and deeper. And sometimes we just need to say, Lord, help. (laughs) Help. Send your grace. I'm tired of swimming in bitterness. Send your grace to rescue me. 
Here's the truth. Bitterness will keep us from straight street. It will keep us from the places Jesus wants us to go. And yes, forgiveness costs something. But, but what if we thought of forgiveness more as an offering? Lord, you've forgiven me so much. And I want to take just a little bit of that forgiveness and offer it to this person who's hurt me as an offering to you. I think one of the ways we move from an instant no to a prayerful yes is by asking God to rescue us from bitterness before bitterness buries us. Which leads, of course, to the, the third thing in this text that gets Ananias from an instant no to a prayerful yes, and that's obedience. Obedience, allowing the word of Jesus to direct us. And we're not told what happens behind the scenes that helps Ananias change his mind. I'm only guessing here, but I guess there had to be a, a modicum of faith, at least a mustard seed of faith, that Jesus knows what he's talking about. Faith helps get us, get us to yes when everything in our humanity screams no. Faith trusts that Jesus knows what he's doing. But what we can be sure about are the first three words that we read in verse 17, which say, then Ananias went. He went. Simple obedience. And yet in this case, simple obedience leads to extravagant blessing. We think of it as a suppressive law, but, but what if it's an invitation? What if it's an invitation to experience God's blessing in a way we never have before? Now, I know I say something about this every other week or so. That, oh, this verse is my favorite verse in the Bible. This verse is my favorite verse in the Bible. I know I say that. But 917 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's just an amazing verse. You've got to see it. Uh, then Ananias went, simple obedience, to the house, house of Judas on Straight Street, and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What a verse. Takes up the whole screen, doesn't it? What an amazing verse. I want you to see the progression here. It starts with the feet. Look down at your feet for just a second. I want you to consider that maybe right now, getting to yes for you is going to start with those feet. Those feet will move you toward someone that you need to forgive, maybe. And, and, and your feet will need to be activated first. That's the way it worked for Ananias. And then he, he found the house and he found... Judas, and he, he, he walked into the presence of this blind zealot named Saul. And then obedience kind of moved from the feet to the hands. So look, look down at your hands for just a second. Did you know that your Christian faith places so much importance on those ten fingers, on, on your hands? It's with your hands that a moment ago you, you held the bread and the cup. And maybe as you did, your heart was just saying, all my hope is in you, Jesus. Jesus, Messiah, all my hope is in you. Your body and your blood. It is with your hands that you reach out and bless others and welcome home prodigal children. It is with your hands that you extend a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. And it is so often with your hands 
that you express your love and your forgiveness. Because when, you're, when your heart's filled with bitterness, what do your hand, where do your hands go? <laughs> you hide them, right? You hide your hands. But isn't it interesting how Ananias placed his hands on Saul? It started with his feet, and it moved to his hands. But ultimately, I was going to say, look down at your mouth, but I guess you can't do that. So just, just touch, your, touch your mouth here. Touch your lips for a second. Because those lips of Ananias had such an important job to do, didn't they? I'll never cease to be amazed by the first words out of Ananias' mouth. Brother Saul. Not enemy Saul, not dastardly Saul. Brother Saul. John Stott has said these may have been the first words that, that Saul ever heard a Christian speak. And they must have sounded like music. Brother, my brother. And with those words and the prayers that accompany them, miracles started to happen one after another. Something like scales falls from his eyes and Saul is able to see again. The Holy Spirit rushes into his heart. The first thing Saul wants to do is to be baptized, to proclaim Christ as Savior and Lord. Then in verse 19, we didn't read it, but verse 19 says another miracle happens in that the Damascus disciples, that was the name of their church softball team, the Damascus disciples, the Damascus disciples welcomed him the one who had killed so many of their friends. They welcomed him. And then another miracle, verse 20, says, at once Paul began to preach and proclaim Jesus is the Son of God. And what was the trigger? What was the catalyst for all these miracles that happened in the life of Saul? It was one man swallowing an understandable no and praying a faith-filled Yes to Jesus. It was this odd couple, terrorist and target, together in humility, in prayer, waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, I want to go back to that initial point of identity. It's so easily overlooked. But I want to ask you, when everything else is scraped off, who are you? How important it is that we remember who we are and whose we are. You know, that we worship the one who has forgiven us of everything. When you, when you scratch off the religious veneer, what does it say I am down deep at my heart's core? I'll never forget the time I, I was serving as an associate pastor in Atlanta and I went to the home of a man who was dying. He had Alzheimer's, and uh, he had not been conversant for some time uh, with his family, and, and uh, he was clearly in his last days, and the family asked me to pray, and I did, and I prayed for him and for them, and I said amen, and, and then a member of the family said, you know what? They said, I think we should sing. Daddy always loved singing in church. I was like, I think that's a great idea. Well, what should we sing? And, and somebody said, you know, I, I know, I remember one of his favorites, and they just started singing it. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the first uh, stanza says, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See at the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching 
for you and for me, and we were singing this song around the man's bed. And when we got to the chorus, this sweet, dying man sang, Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. We just kind of all looked at each other. Because at his heart, <laughs> when everything else seemingly had gone, at his heart, he sang that he was a child of God and that Jesus was going to welcome him home. Friends, I pray for you and for me when everything else goes, that song remains. We belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. Ananias belongs to Jesus. Saul belongs to Jesus. And all of us can come home. And we can come home together. Let's pray. Lord, how you love us. How you daily, hourly demonstrate your gracious love for us by saying yes after we've hurt you so much by saying yes to our salvation yes to our forgiveness yes to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives yes to hope yes to a future Lord I feel pretty pretty convinced that as I've been talking about this painful topic, some faces and names have come to mind. Lord, only you know the pain. And yeah, Lord, I pray that you would speak and speak clearly and that we would remember who we are and that we would follow you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.